You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of Pyre Books. That's an imprint of Prometheus Books and one of the preeminent science fiction editors working right now. Thank you for joining me, Lou. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, Lou, let's talk a little bit about a science fiction video and particularly some of the works that are nominated for the Hugo. Um, Stardust is the first among these. And when I read that book, I thought it was as near to damn perfect as a book could be. It was just a beautiful book. Um, tell me what you thought of the book. Well, you know, I am ashamed to admit I have not read Stardust. I, um, I have read a lot of Gaiman, going all the way back to his comic book days, but Stardust is not one of them. American Gods is probably one of my all-time favorite books, certainly uh, one of my favorite science fiction and fantasy works of the last ten years. Well, tell us a little bit about the movie. I haven't seen the movie, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I have to say, when I saw it, what I saw from the previous, although I liked the uh, director's previous effort, it, it looked a little bit, uh, I guess, spick and span would be the well, word I was used. You know, it's interesting that you love the book and haven't seen the movie. Stardust is one of my brother's all-time favorite books, if not his all-time favorite book, and he had no interest in the film. And I wonder if that's true for a lot of Gaiman's fans. Um, I know from my brother's perspective, he felt like the language of the book was so much a part of why he liked it above and beyond you know, the events of the narrative, the way the narrative was told. He just didn't believe a film could capture it. Um, having not read the book but read a lot of Gaiman, I actually did feel like the film did a good job of capturing my mind's eye version of what Gaiman's voice sounds like. Uh, I, I guess it is a fairly faithful adaptation. Um, I enjoyed the film a lot. I could see why it did not do at the box office what they hoped it would. Well, tell us uh, why, because one of the things I thought when I read the book, I thought, well, gosh, it could really make a good movie and, and seemed that it would be really easy to capture uh, a large audience with this movie. And so tell me what you thought about the movie, um, what worked for it, and what worked against it. You know, I think that what, uh, what most makes it good and maybe limits its appeal is the same thing which is that the kind of fantasy that it's telling, the, 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 where the secondary world, the imaginary world, is uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, uh, is not necessarily as, as, as real a place as something like Tolkien's Middle Earth, isn't going to work for a broad category moviegoer. Uh, I think that something like George R. R. Martin's books, if the HBO adaptation does go ahead, I don't know what the status of that is now, has a much better chance of scoring with a broader audience, uh, in the same way that the uh, Lord of the Rings films did. You know, the 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 Tolkien's Middle Earth is a very well realized, fully realized environment, uh, thanks to Peter Jackson, that you believe in. And I think that level of credibility may be necessary for a wider audience. I think when you when you have something like Stardust, that is. Um, and I'm not sure how well I'm articulating this, but when you have something with Stardust where there's, a level, there's, a, there's one level of, of, uh, of separation between what's actually happening and, and our world where we know this is a story, we know this is a, is, is, a, is a put on, we know this isn't real. There's a city called Wall, 
Uh, it's going to fall into the category of things like Baron Munchausen, which is one of my all-time favorite films, but again, did not score at the box office with a great number of people. Well, I'll agree with you about Baron Munchausen. It's one of my favorite films, and I think the point you make is, is absolutely great because I think what the broader audience needs to connect with a fantasy is that feeling of grit that we're looking at a real world, and that's what enables a, a broad audience to, to really enjoy something like The Lord of the Rings or this uh, purported, and I haven't heard about this, adaptation of George R. R. Martin's work, um, is that kind of grit that it is a, a real world. And whereas genre, people who are familiar with genre fiction and like it will understand the conventions upon which, the literary conventions upon which something like Stardust or Baron Munchausen or even um, another movie that's uh, hi highly regarded but I don't think did too well at the box office, The Princess Bride. All these have kind of literary constructs underneath them that as opposed to like the feeling that there's a real world with dirt and taverns. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned The Princess Bride. Uh, so many people tried to compare it favorably or disfavorably to The Princess Bride when it came out, Stardust. Uh, a lot of uh, genre fans even said, oh, they've ruined it, they've tried to make it Princess Bride. But the reason is is because Princess Bride is the only thing of that nature that Hollywood knows. Interesting, yeah. Um, you know, Hollywood's always, I, I get endlessly frustrated how uh, so many things always point back to either Blade Runner or Aliens. I mean, every other science fiction film made is either a remake of Blade Runner or a remake of Aliens or a mashup of Blade Runner meets Aliens. When something like uh, The Fifth Element came along a few years ago, despite the fact that that's an absolutely ludicrous story, I absolutely love The Fifth Element. So very, very, very ranks very, very, very highly with me because it was one of the first films to come along in a long time that chose as its, as its scenery and iconography something that wasn't inspired by H.R. Giger. Uh, that, now, that's an interesting uh, observation because, actually, I was not a fan of The Fifth Element because it just, it, for me, the, visually, it didn't really come together. Mm. But um, it, it is true that it is one of the few films that's not um, inspired by Giger. Uh, Speaking of which, um, <laughs> this is a little bit of a tangent. You know that uh, Tor has just released a new version of Necroscope. Um, this is the famous uh, Brian Lumley series, a vampire series that came out in '86. Um, when I first read those books, I, re I the, especially the first two, I really loved them, and I wrote reviews of them, and I described them as being like a, a sixty million dollar version of a B movie, and. and um, Actually, uh, Lumley wrote me back and said, you know, what, it's really an A movie. <laughs> Not, I think, exactly getting that. I, I meant that as a high compliment. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the new version of uh, Necroscope, the blurb comes not from another author, Stephen King or something. It comes from H.R. Giger, and I think that's interesting because one of the things I did feel when I read those books was that they were really uh, one of the first pieces of literature where you could see the inspiration of Giger reaching from films back into literature, and that doesn't happen that often. You know, that, that is interesting. I've read a few science fiction manuscripts recently where someone is describing rifts in space in terms of like a liquid mirror that vibrates and then pushes something through, and I know that they're getting that image from the Terminator films. Um, we are seeing a lot of, of, of I think, uh, the pop culture feeding back and informing the genre. I mean, not even in, in major ways, just in little, little tiny ways like that. Well, my my big beef, if I can, sure. is um, someone, uh, Paul Barnett, who writes on the name John Grant, but edits as Paul Barnett. 
pointed out some years ago uh, that for some reason, you know, you, you've heard there's a 25-year lag between something coming out in science fiction books and that, that idea making it into film. You know, uh, The mm -hmm. Matrix, for all the flaws of its follow-up films, is still one of the most cutting-edge and innovative films Hollywood has made in years. But The Matrix is itself just a mashup of Philip K. Dick and William Gibson. So it's and Stanislaw Lem, too. Yes, yes. So it's drawing on things that are decades old. Yeah. And it's still cutting-edge for Hollywood. But by contrast, it's fairly easy for fantasy film to be uh, equal to its, its, its equivalent in the literary world. I mean, a film like The Sixth Sense, when it came out, is as good a ghost story as you're going to get. And um, I'm frustrated by the fact that, you know, right now we're seeing a great many fantasy works uh, being adapted into film straight away. You know, the, the, the aforementioned Stardust, uh, The Golden Compass, Holly Black's work, uh, the George R. R. Martin being developed at HBO, if that's still on. There's a lot of things being written right now in the fantasy field that are being picked up for film, but we've still got that 25-year lag. They're talking about a sequel to I Am Legend. They're working on another Isaac Asimov property. And I wish that we saw more contemporary science fiction, things that had been written, you know, if not this year, at least this well, century, being adapted, adapted in the film by Hollywood. Uh, I think it, it's not happening in Hollywood, but one place it really is happening is over in the U.K. and BBC. Mm. Uh, we have uh, some really fine science fiction writers, uh, Paul Cornell and uh, Stephen Moffat, I think is his name, working for uh, the venerable Doctor Who series. And for all the, the flaws and the, and the oddnesses of Doctor Who that kind of bounce off the American audiences, some of those stories that they're writing are some of the strongest science fiction we've seen uh, on the screen in, in, in decades, and, and equally the on a writing level, I think, better than most Hollywood movies. Um, and I'm thinking of The Girl in the Fireplace. I, and I, if, I'm, I'm not mistaken. That either was or is nominated for a Hugo. It and is. Uh, it was nominated for a Hugo. Now Blink, Moffitt's next outing, is up for a Hugo. And Paul Cornell's two-parter, Human Nature and Family of Blood, is up for a Hugo. Um, Paul's a dear friend, so I want to be clear. I was more talking about uh, the adaptations, the mm -hmm. lag adaptations in film. I do agree with you 100% about what both of those writers have been doing with Doctor Who. Uh, Blink, in particular, is probably as good a time travel story as you could find in any form or media. And it's interesting, too. I mean, uh, Cornell has written some good stuff that's outside of, of Doctor Who, just, you know, good good novels. So I, I think, well, you know, there's a there are some, you know, hope coming from across the, the U.K. that, that uh, maybe science fiction might indeed catch up. But I do think, again, it, it's amazing how many great science fiction works, recent science fiction works, are passed by to be... Um, to see like moldy TV series recast and redone in big budget form, it's it's really disheartening. <laughs> well, you handed me a plug which I have to pick up on, which is that Paul's actually written a short story for the next Fast Forward anthology, which will be out in October, which is absolutely fantastic. It's about an alt history James Bond character called John Hamilton in a sort of future biopunk Britain where the British Empire has gone out and colonized the solar system. And it's absolutely magnificent. And Paul's also uh, burning up the scene right now in comic books. He's doing the new Captain Britain in MI-13 for Marvel Comics. And I just heard from him that it sold out uh, completely in both the U.K. and the U.S. 
Well, so I think that a lot of people are going to hear a lot more about Paul you know, in the coming months. And, and Stephen Moffat is now heading up the, the new Doctor Who. He's replacing Russell T. Davies. Yes, he is. Which is, I think, uh, uh, excellent news. I, although I think Davies really, really got what made Doctor Who a good series. Um, putting the guy who wrote The Girl in the Fireplace in charge is a brilliant movie. Yeah, I think that Moffat is running. Moffat's running real science fiction. He's running real science fiction. One of the things I love about it is that all of Moffat's episodes, going back to the um, the one with the gas masks, uh, The Doctor Dances and uh, The Empty Child. Oh, boy, those were great. <laughs> you know, The Empty Child is horrifying. But the reason for the horror has a scientific explanation. Uh, yes, and, that, and I do agree. That's one of the interesting uh, things that makes those episodes. And that television show was so strong is that occasionally they actually allow um, science fiction, and they focus on the writing as well. It, you know, it seems like they put as much money in the writing into the writing as the effects, whereas in almost any American production, you can barely tell that, that uh, anybody bothered to write it at all. <laughs> well, I think there's some hopeful things on the horizon. I mean, I'm, on the one hand... There's a lot happening in television that's not happening in cinema. You know, uh, cinema seems to be dumbing down faster and faster just because they want to sell that movie in as many different territories and languages as they can, and they want a, a big, simple story with lots of explosions and a few hot girls that they can hang a narrative on and ship out easily, whereas television is becoming more and more and more about the secondary market, about making it nuanced enough and complicated enough that someone wants to buy the box set versus all the other box sets on offer, or, or download it on iTunes and watch it over and over and over again. So in the rush not to be disposable, television across the board, uh, as, as I think led by HBO and now spreading to other channels like A&E, et cetera, is getting better and better. And my favorite show on right now is actually Mad Men on A&E, the show about mass new ad execs in the 1960s, which should have been an HBO show, except that HBO has now dropped the ball, and the kind of show they pioneered is now happening everywhere. Um, so on the one hand, I think television may be where the future lies. I'm very excited to hear about Neil Stevenson working with George Clooney to do the Diamond Age for Sci-Fi Channel. Um, really? I haven't heard about that. That's that pretty amazing. Out, you know, I, I'm a little skeptical that Sci-Fi Channel's offerings are pretty uneven, like but if Stevenson himself terrible. is involved, and Clooney does not make, you know, I mean, I haven't loved everything George Clooney has done, but George Clooney brings a level of quality to everything he does, whether I like it or not. It's always quality. So that's very exciting. That is um, exciting, too, to see the writer involved. It's not always the case that the writer right. actually gets to be involved. And then beyond that, just that, you know, it's moving out beyond Hollywood. I mean, we're going to see more and more things like Pan's Labyrinth coming out of Spain that, that was just magnificent. And... Uh, you know, as the cost of, of making film drops, there's going to be more things like Sky Captain the World Tomorrow, where some guy put it together on his Macintosh first and then took it into Hollywood and cast it. And so just by virtue of the fact that there's going to be more of everything, and that includes more crap, we've got a better percentage chance, there's better odds at getting some real science fiction in the mix. Well, speaking of real science fiction, let's talk about what's coming out from Pyre Books. You talked about this would be Fast Forward 3, right? Fast Forward 2. Fast, fast Forward 2. Fast Forward 2. Coming out in October. Coming out in October. Yeah. And what else have you got lined up? Uh, you've been doing some great work with uh, Michael Moorcock. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm very, very proud of that book. Um, let me pull up. We actually, by coincidence, I just realized as I was filling out my latest invoice that I am in my 50th month 
of working for Prometheus Books as the editor of Buyer. And by coincidence, our 50th book is at the printer right now, which is David Lewis Edelman's multi-reel. That'll be coming back from the printer in about a week. That that series, I think, has a lot of potential. I really liked the first book, and from what I've read of the second book, I think it's it's really outstanding, and it's very very different from a lot of what you find out there. And that's, I think, one of the the big selling points for this book. Well, you know, it is and it isn't. I mean, he's done that wonderful thing of taking the familiar and packaging it with the unfamiliar. Um, on the one hand, teleporters, nanotechnologies. Uh, you know, disruptor guns, none of these things are new. On the other hand, he's presented them in a way I'd never seen before. I mean, the way that he integrates the, the, the virtual reality with the real world, so it's augmented reality, is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think I've said before, I was reading William Gibson's Spook Country, which I absolutely love, and there's one chapter where he talks about taking his locative reality concept and projecting it forward, and it's probably a whole city where everything is locative. And I was like, yes, it's called InfoQuake. We published it in 2005. <laughs> um, we've got the, um, the third book in K. Kenyon's series, A City Without End, which is just continuing to blow me away. I, I, uh, we have a book coming out from Chris Roberson called End of the Century, which is, ooh, Grail Quest Urban Fantasy Meets Ian McDonald. <laughs> that sounds good. I, I love Roberson stuff. He he's an interesting writer, and and he he sent, he reminds me a bit of uh, Kim Newman with his ability to combine old and new into this kind of steampunk uh, trope, which is really seems to be taking over and, and uh, heading out into to mainstream culture more. It's a, certainly uh, often featured in uh, fashion, and that, I think that's an interesting tie-in. Uh, from science fiction to fashion. That might be a way science fiction actually makes it more into the mainstream if people want to wear steampunk clothing. It's going to, you know, steampunk is something I'm very interested in. Um, Solaris have the steampunk anthology coming out. Instead of putting an illustrated cover on it, they went to one of these guys that makes steampunk devices and had them make one that they then photographed and ran as a cover. And I think that's a brilliant way to try and pull some of those people in the steampunk fashion community or the steampunk make community back into the genre the literary side of it. Um, this one's not so much steampunk. It's, a, it's an 18-year-old girl who all her life has been having epileptic fits and drawing, seeing visions of the London Eye. Uh, but the London Eye hasn't been built yet. And when the millennium arrives and they build it, she freaks out and buys herself a one-way plane ticket to Britain, where all of a sudden uh, wild huntsmen start chasing her and the ravens from the Tower of London start talking to her. And she gets drawn into a grail conspiracy that goes all the way back to 900 A.D. and the true meaning of the Holy Grail and to, a, to the end of time. Now, um, this sounds a bit reminiscent of a wonderful uh, series by Mark Chadborn mm -hmm. um, that uh, also had uh, the wild hunt being, you know, kind of... Uh, his, his premise was that at the turn of the millennium, the <clears throat> um, essentially... Science started to wind down, things started to work less, and magic started to come back to life. And uh, with this, we saw the wild hunt start to arise in London and all sorts of the, the, the world of fairies started to inc uh, creep into our world. And it's, a, it's a wonderfully realized trilogy. I am going to just say that it's actually sitting on my desk right now. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> Uh, Lou, so what else are you looking forward to, either in or out of the genre? 
You mean in film? In film, books. I'm I'm mildly curious about Ron Moore's uh, three film deal with United Artists because Moore is one of those people that really understands literary science fiction. Uh, not not just as someone who read Bradbury and Asimov as a kid and then never looked back. He he still reads. He still knows. He came to the Nebula Weekend. You know, he still has a, a an understanding of what the real stuff is. And uh, for all Battlestar Galactica's flaws, it's still one of the most dignified uh, portrayals of science fiction on television. Um, I am very, very encouraged by Joseph Malozzi, uh, uh, the executive producer of Stargate, who got turned on to reading again by John Scalzi and now runs a book club on his blog. Really? And, uh, oh, yeah. Malozzi is a saint. Our, our, our community really owe him a huge debt of thanks, and I hope that... You know, when, when, when Joe Straczynski was doing Battle, Babylon 5, uh, I think that he was perhaps snubbed by some people in the convention circuits who said, oh, television isn't real science fiction, which is a real shame because Babylon 5, for all of its wobbly sets, is, is still the only show that ever had a beginning, a middle, and an end and was written like a novel. Right, and, and oh. incorporated real elements of science fiction and, uh, you know, the, the elements of space opera in a manner that wasn't just a retread, but... Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And, 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 and real writers. I mean, had Harlan Ellison and Neil Gaiman writing for the show. And, uh, and I hope that, Mo- that we've learned, you know, because Malozzi, um, yeah, he started uh, every month, he asked his, his blog readers, who number in the many, many thousands, to pick one fantasy title and one science fiction title, and they vote on what they want to read from the selection he gives them. And then they read those two books that month, and they hold the discussion, very often inviting the authors in to talk. Uh, I've been on, John Scalzi was just on, Joe Abercrombie was just on, and it's an amazing service he's doing. And uh, he's, he's very, very, very aware of literary science fiction and fantasy. And there are not many people in Hollywood who are, so we need to encourage it whenever it happens. It's great to hear that. We've been speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of the Pyre imprint over at Prometheus Books. They're pr- he's in his 50th month. They're approaching their 50th title. Congratulations, Lou. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.